know there's so much background. I brought my bottle with me because I need it occasionally. It's really water. Okay, I'm Chuck Walton, and I served in the Philippines for 30 years, and it was a very precious time, all of it. Years ago, someone said to me, after I'd been serving about 30 years, they said, wow, you've been with that organization that long? Couldn't you find a better job? And my answer was, there is no better job. And I've just enjoyed the whole bit of it. And besides being there, I spent 10 years at our Wycliffe Affiliate School in Dallas, Texas, teaching linguistics. And if anybody's interested in studying linguistics, we can tell you where there are a couple of good programs that would prepare you for serving in a foreign country and learning another language. I never thought I could be a linguist Bible translator. It was just beyond anything I could imagine. I love that story, Dan, about the lost sheep. Because when I was eight years old, child evangelism had an evangelistic service for children in Town Hall, Philadelphia. And our leader took a busload of kids down to Town Hall. And from my club, we were up in the balcony of an auditorium with over 3,000 kids in it. And the preacher told the story of the lost sheep. And I was from a Christian home. And we used to love to sing a song called, There are ninety and nine and one was lost. And as the preacher preached, he said, you know, the good shepherd went out to find that one lost sheep. And today, the shepherd is here looking for lost sheep also. And if you're a lost sheep and you want to be found by the Savior, just come down front here in the auditorium and we'll pray with you. Well, eight years old, I'm up in the balcony and I said, oh, if I go down there, I might not be able to find my bus and I'll be lost. <laughs> but if I don't go, I really might be lost forever. And so I went down to the front and I was found by my Savior. A couple of years ago, I was working with a guy who felt he was an atheist, who was my age. His father was an electrician. I had been, my father was an electrician. We grew up in the same neighborhood that we just met a few years ago. And uh, I was telling Joe, well, he had actually played football probably against me at some point. We didn't know it. He had taught in the same high school where I had taught, even though I didn't know him in Philadelphia. And uh, 
One day after we were considering uh, the apologetics of why Christianity is factually true, I decided I ought to tell Joe the story of how I was found as a young boy of eight years old and how that has made all the difference. And, you know, often you think, oh, I grew up in a Christian home. I don't have a story to tell. But as I was telling that story to Joe over lunch, I suddenly realized he wasn't moving. And I looked up and the tears were just running down Joe's face. And he said, oh, that it only happened to me. Everything would have been different. So I challenge you, if you haven't lived a, a life of great sin, your simple testimony of how Christ found you and changed your life can really move people who are looking for the Savior. So don't be bashful about it. Thanks for that story, Dan. Just brings me back to my the day when I was saved. Well, uh, you know, we, we, we get away from Jesus sometimes. And as I grew up, uh, I wondered. And uh, when I was about 17 years old, I came back to Christ. And uh, I was reading systematically through the scriptures. And one day I came to Isaiah 6. When the, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And uh, the angels were crying to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and of a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the Lord. And that really spoke to me. Of, of all the experiences I have had in the scripture. At 17, that was the most vivid experience I had with God in my whole life. And it still resonates with me powerfully today. And then Isaiah heard that said this and the angel took tongs and a, and a coal from the altar and he put it on Isaiah's lips and cleansed them and uh, that really spoke to me because I in a, living in a Christian home I was having trouble coming in off the street to clean up my speech I was truly a person of unclean lips and it was a big problem and God spoke to me from that and said, I can do it for you too. Then I heard a voice, he says. And the voice said, who can I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send my sister. No, he didn't. But sometimes we think that. Let the women go. They're the only ones that are man enough to do it. <laughs> but I didn't say that. And uh, I said, here I am. Send me, Lord. Now, I didn't get to go. I had a lot of training to do. And uh, I went away to Bible school. And after a three-year Bible school, I went to Wheaton College and got a degree from there. 
I couldn't find a job, and Philadelphia schools were advertising that uh, they had 800 vacant positions. Uh, please apply. So I applied, and I got a temporary job, and then I got certified and uh, taught in the Philadelphia schools, and I loved it. And then one day, well, Janice and I got married. We were working in an inner city school, city uh, church with 30 members. We had 100 in Sunday school. And we thought, wow, this is what God wants us to do. Then one day, a missionary came to our church, and we were having a potluck. And she sat down and she said, you know, Janice and Chuck, you have all the training you would need to serve on the mission field. Have you ever thought of doing it? And we said, yes, we had. And she said, then why aren't you there? Hmm. In my mind, I thought, pushy old lady. <laughs> that part didn't get saved yet, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, you know, these are things we have to face. And she said, you know, uh, mission boards don't send out missionaries. In fact, uh, churches don't send out missionaries. And so I said, who does? Do you know what the answer is? God sends out missionaries. And she said, he does it in answer to prayer. So she said, would you be willing for me to pray for you every day that God would give you a clear sense of direction of whether this is your place in this small church, in an industrial part of the city, teaching in the public schools, Janice working as a nurse in the hospitals, whether this is the place or whether he wants you abroad. Would you be willing for me to pray that for you? And we said, uh, yes. So she said, all right, if you're willing for me to pray that for you every day until you know, then will you promise me that you will pray every day until you know? It's like, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. But... We agreed. And then we decided, all right, we need to ask other people to pray. So we asked our parents, our pastor, Janice's pastor, the one who married us, and we started praying. Within three months, we said, well, wait, you can't steer a parked car. You know, sometimes we think we're going someplace and we're like a little kid sitting on the, standing on the seat working the, the wheel. And we're going nowhere. So you have to move the car in order to steer it. And so we started writing to missions. And uh, we got, we wrote to about 10 mission boards. And as we wrote to them, we found out something about Wycliffe Bible translators, that they could use a teacher, and they could use nurses, and people of all kinds of skills. And so we said, okay, why don't we go do that? I can teach in a school for missionary kids or in some other kind of a school on the field. Janice can do nursing. So we applied to Wycliffe. And they said to us, well, you know, you have a pretty good educational background. Janice is a, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, so they said, you've got a pretty good education. Why don't you take these linguistics courses? Then you would know more about the work we do. We would, you would know how we go in 
and study a local language and how we uh, write a grammar for that language and make a dictionary for that language. And you would know how we go about translating. And even though you went to teach school or be a nurse, you could still explain that to the churches and individuals who support you. So we said, okay. And we took the courses. And then they said, oh, you did very well. You could be a translator if you wanted to. And so we decided, since that's the main thrust of the organization, we'll try it. Now, we were really afraid. Janice... Um, nearly flunked German in high school, even though she was a straight-A student. It took me seven semesters of Latin to pass four. (laughs) And God made me a linguist. Well, God has a sense of humor, but furthermore, he's promised that without me you can do nothing. However, through Christ, we can do all things. And he will give us the enablement to do those things. So as you think about your future, don't think about what your skills are and what you're going to be able to do, but think about what God can do through you. And even though your passion is in this direction, if you're an ambassador of the king and the king says, go this way, you don't say, Oh, but my passion's here, king. Do you? What does it mean for Jesus to be king? So, uh, follow your passion. Follow your gifting. But be ready for something else. Some people have said, Oh, if you're an extrovert, you shouldn't try to do a translation task. Well, I'm I'm an extrovert. You better believe it. And uh, yet, God has enabled me to sit at a desk when I need to in order to get the work done to do it. Uh, Bible translators don't just sit at a desk, though. They get out and interact with lots of people and have lots of opportunities to disciple people. Because the translation task is actually a task of discipling the people you work with while you're doing translation with them. And so we've had wonderful opportunities doing that. I don't know if you know how many languages there are in the world today. Do you have any idea? 150. 150. Anybody have another number? 2,025. All right. Anybody have another number? What is it? Go ahead. Oh, take a flyer. What? No. There's actually 7,100 languages. Oh, you were about to say it. Oh, I took the words out of your mouth. You know, huh? Okay. How many, were, how many of these languages have a complete Bible? What do you think? A little bit high. 400. 400. Still high. What? A little higher than that. 200 and, there's about 250, 54 in around there. Now, just think. I have 
close friends of mine, a husband and wife, who did two translations for different languages of the whole Bible. You know, it's like, whoa, you're one of 250 in the whole Christian experience to have done this. Talk about a unique contribution. Wow, that's it. Uh, Well, you know, there's lots of other tasks related to Bible translation. Ways that you can be involved. A young woman said to me this morning, she said, well, I'm uh, studying government. Well, Wycliffe has need for government relations workers. Because we, if we're going to work in countries and live in very remote places, we have to keep the government informed of what we're doing and relate to people at the highest level in order to do that. Well, Janice and I went to the Philippines and we worked with a language in the northern Philippines known as Itnug. And uh, the Lord helped us to learn that language and to begin translation for it. And uh, we spent about five years with that group. And we saw the church turn around from a group who did not know what they believed. No, one person in the whole church knew that you could be saved. Amazing. But during our time there, we saw the whole thing get turned around. And people got into the word of God. They got studying it. They got sharing it with others and planting other churches. So we moved on to a place in the south. And there we felt we should work with Muslims. And so for 18 years, we lived amongst Muslim people in the southern Philippines. And it was a great blessing to do that. We wanted to work with the Pangotaran people, Sama people of Pangotaran Island. Uh, One of the qualifications for a Bible translation is it has to have an unpronounceable name. (laughs) Not quite. Uh, There's actually one language called Eek. That's easy to pronounce. So, but anyway, we asked the government for permission to work with the Sama people of Pangotaran Island. And the government said, uh, you can't go to Pangotaran Island. Uh, but we had, through a language survey, we knew that there were displaced people living about 140 miles away on another island. And uh, so we found we could get permission to go live among them, living in a displa- uh, displaced location. So Janice and I went and we studied the language there and we began translation. And working with Muslims, we started with, uh, I started on Genesis, and Janice started translating Exodus. And we worked on, did most of those two books. And uh, had a wonderful response that people had to the Word of God. Uh, And over the years, as we translated some of the Gospels, we realized the language there was changing. because they were surrounded by another language and so they had lost one of the vowels in the language the vowel is pronounced ooh, ooh. no wonder they lost it but, uh, and they changed it to o uh, they, they changed the word for mother the word for father and a, word, a number of different words and we realized if the translation we're working on is going to reach the homeland of the language we better go and live there. Well, the reason we weren't given permission to live there was 
it was at the time we went to study the language, Pangotaran Island was in the hands of the rebels. The Philippine government didn't control it, and so they wouldn't give us permission to go and live there. Well, after about uh, seven or eight years, we were able to go to the island of Pangotaran and live there. And uh, we were able to uh, rent a uh, sort of a warehouse that was right in the sea, built right in the sea with con connection to a pier. And we converted that warehouse into a little living quarters for ourselves and an office where we could do our work. And uh, then we were told by the local police uh, be careful where you travel because it's dangerous. Uh, there are people around here who kidnap other people. And uh, so be careful when you travel especially. Don't let it be known where you're going or when you're going. Now the only way to get on that island was by boat. And there were usually three boats a week. And one of those days, there'd be a boat going two different directions. And so we never let people know when we would travel. And uh, so one Saturday, the chief of police said to me, uh, look, be very careful. There's some rumors around that people are talking. And uh, so be careful what you're doing. And uh, if you're planning to travel, don't let it be known. But as long as you're in town, you're safe. Well, on a Sunday night after that, there came a knock to my door. And uh, there were two young men in the house with me. One was like our adopted son. His name is Daoud, which is, means David in Arabic. And he's a Muslim background believer now. Uh, and his friend Ray was in the house. So Ray went to the door to pull the bolts back. It was about 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. And Ray thought there was a quiet knock. He thought, oh, it's my dad coming around to spend the evening with Chuck. So as he pulled the bolts back on the door, six men with M16s crashed through and surrounded me and said, if you fight, you're dead. If you shout, you're dead. I raised my hands and I said, oh Lord, help me to remember the contingency training I received for such an event as this. And then a man came up behind me with a, a harness he had made out of rope. And he put it over my upper body so all I could move is my arms like this. Uh, we lived in a house that was right over the water, in the water. Uh, you know, uh, missionaries do have some fun. Uh, I could slide off my side porch and go snorkeling. But uh, because they had seen me out snorkeling for quite a long time, at some times, they realized I could swim. And so they tied a tether to me and a man in front, and to me and a man in back, and they led me out in the moonless night to the boats that were waiting there next to the house. 
They backed out into the channel and they took some diversionary measures. And I looked up at the stars and I thought, where in the world are we going? And uh, all I could think was, if I could get away, I wouldn't know where I am. And then the words came to me. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I'm carried to the far side of the sea, even there your hand will find me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Though I say to the darkness, cover me, even the dark will be light to you. Janice and I, a number of years before, while we were driving across country, had tried to memorize Psalm 139, and we thought we had failed. But when the time came that I needed that most, God brought that back to me. And as they took me away for three or four hours into this moonless night to some unknown destination, I meditated upon what it meant for Jesus to be Emmanuel, God with us. We arrived at an island and they had a a vehicle there waiting and they took me inland to their encampment in a very heavily overgrown jungle area and they had cut out an encampment in there and uh, they had a house about 10 by 10 feet square and they had put bars on the windows and bars on the doors And they threw me in there and locked the door. And as that door locked, I said, Lord, I've been telling you for a long time, I want to spend more time with you. It looks like you gave it to me. Be careful what you tell the Lord. No, don't. But keep your promises. Well, interrogation started, and uh, they were telling me very vividly what they were going to do to me. Uh, They were making accusations that I was CIA, that I was doing all kinds of things, but their main uh, complaint was I was destroying their religion. This is a Muslim area, 100% Muslim, and... uh, There are 13 different languages in the southern Philippines spoken by Muslims. Many people don't realize how many Muslims there are in the Philippines. There's between 5 and 6 million Muslims out of a population of 100 million. So there's quite a few. Uh, 13 different ethno-linguistic groups. Now, uh, Wycliffe had done three translations for three of those... Translations for three of those ethno-linguistic groups. And the one we were doing was the fourth. And so they said, you're destroying our religion. And I said, how am I doing that? And they said, well, we teach people that the Torah, the Taurat they call it, the Jabul, the Psalms, and the Injil, the Gospels, we teach them they no longer exist except as they are summarized in the Quran. And then you come 
and you translate those books into our languages. And the people read it, and then they go to our religious leaders and say, you teach this, this, and this, but the Injil and the Torah and the Psalms say this and this. How do you explain that? So they said, you are destroying our religion. Now, my colleagues and I thought we were having no effect. Muslim people are very resistant. However, from the enemy's point of view, the word of God was having a great effect. You know, missionaries can't do it unless they've got the scripture in the language of the people. And the scripture in the language of the people is the thing that will move and create churches and develop whole evangelistic movements. The word of God in the language of the people. And this is what has been happening in the southern Philippines. Now, after two, three, four, I have no idea how long it went on. They finally said, go to sleep. Yeah, right. Well, even in the jungle, it can be pretty cold at night. And so I said, where shall I sleep? And they said, right there on the floor. I said, if I sleep on that floor without a mat, I'll get sick. And you'll have a sick hostage. I don't think you want that. So they brought me a mat. And then I said, wow, it's cold. I, I need a blanket. And they brought me a blanket. So I said, I don't sleep well without a pillow. <laughs> and they brought me a pillow. And I, I just thank God that I could make my needs known in an appropriate way. And they would respond. Uh, someone has said, if you're going to get kidnapped, do it in the Philippines. Because Filipinos are so hospitable. Even terrorists are hospitable. As I laid down there, you can imagine what's happening in my mind. Just going wild. How will I ever sleep? And then the words that my mother taught me as a young child from Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. And I said, Oh Lord, help me to fix my mind on you. And I started thanking him for the 18 years we had lived in Muslim communities, for the many friends that we had, the, the people who had, very few who had come to Christ, but there were some people we could rejoice in. For the fact that even though these terrorists were trying to stop our translation, it was already finished, backed up on computer disks. Uh, I thank God for the safety it given us in travel over wide areas of sea, in stormy weather, all kinds of things that God had delivered us from. And as this went on, the verse that, that from the Psalms, I will lay me down in peace and sleep for you, Lord, only cause me to dwell in safety. And then the verse came, and so he gives his beloved sleep. And I went off and slept like a baby for probably six hours. In the morning, I heard a chainsaw going. 
and the chainsaw and a hammer's pounding. And I said, what's going on out here in a godforsaken place like this? And they said, oh, we're building you a new house. And uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning, they took me out of that 10 foot by 10 foot house and they took me into a heavily overgrown jungle area. They had cut out a space, uh, an S-shaped trail, so if you were out here, you couldn't see anything inside. So dense. And then inside, they cut out a space three and a half feet wide and about seven feet long, and they built a cage there. And they made me crawl in through this two-by-two -two door. When I stood up, it was only shoulder high, so I couldn't walk around. And I said, Lord, this is the size of a hospital bed. You have been faithful to many of your servants on their last days on a bed this size. And I know you can keep me here. My wife Janice was irate when I told her they kept me in a cage. And I said, honey, did you pray that God would put a hedge of protection around me? And she said, yes, I did. I said, well, that cage was God's answer to your prayers. Because, you know, in any terrorist organization, there are some really intelligent people. But along with that, there are some really crazy people. And I had guards 24 hours a day. And some of those people were absolutely crazy. And that cage protected me from the crazies. Uh, many people wonder why they kept me in a cage. Well, they had been watching me for from November, from from February until November, <clears throat> and I used to run a 10k about three or four days a week. I would always change the time I did it. I would not do it on successive days, perhaps so that people couldn't make plans against me. But when they would see me run and then they'd see me stretch and so forth, maybe do a couple of pull-ups, they assumed that I was a Kung Fu and Karate expert. <laughs> and the more I denied it, the more they believed it. And sometimes they would get me out of that cage and They'd have six or eight guys with M16s standing around, and they would stand back about eight feet as if I was going to come out like Chuck Norris kicking. <laughs> and I would just laugh. And they'd say, what are you laughing about? I'd say, never mind, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> now, I had told the Lord I wanted to spend this time with him. If you don't have a Bible, how do you spend time with the Lord? Well, I prayed a lot for Janice because my wife Janice was in Philadelphia caring for her mother who had Alzheimer's. And I was just back in the Philippines for a three-month stint. And I was about to go back in two weeks. And uh, I prayed so much for Janice because she was as much a captive as I was. You know, I thanked God I would never have to explain to Janice how I got in this situation. Because we both knew the dangers that were there. And we were agreed that God wanted the scriptures translated into the language of the Pangotaran people. And we were ready to give whatever it cost. 
I tried to recite Psalm 23, and my mind was so troubled I could not recite Psalm 23. And finally, I was able to sing it and then recite it. And I think I got to about, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When a guy came down to where the cage was, their headquarters was off at a distance, probably 300 yards away. He brought a huge basin of rice uh, for my guards and for me. So I ate whatever my guards had ate for the whole time I was held. And uh, there were so few fish to go along with it. And uh, I just thought, you prepare a table before me. I know you will provide. And after I meditated on Psalm 23, I went over to, to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. How do you meditate on the law of the Lord? What law does that mean? Does that mean the Ten Commandments? Well, that would be pretty good for starters. But I think Torah refers to not just the instructions God has given in his Ten Commandments, but all of God's instructions. And all of the Septuagint, all of the uh, Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And that's a lot to meditate on. But the result of meditating on this was, will be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that will bring forth fruit in its season. And then it goes on and it says, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. I had watched many a Filipino woman pounding rice and they uh, have a mortar and a pestle and they pound away and pound away and then they take, scoop the rice out and they put it in a big flat basket, a winnowing basket, and they throw it up in the air and as they throw the rice up in the air, the breeze that blows by just takes away the chaff. And the chaff is worth nothing. It's good for nothing. And it'll be blown away and burned in the fire. And if the woman, if there is no breeze, the woman will just breathe gently like this. And her breath is enough to carry away the chaff. And I've seen it many, many times over the years. And as I meditated on that, I thought, you bad boys are just like the chaff. And all it would take is the slightest breath from my God to blow you away. Then I thought on other passages of scripture. I tried to think my way through whole passages. And my mind kept going back to the Gospel of John. And uh, I felt especially great comfort. I, I'm not going to go through all my meditation on the book of John, but I could probably do that tonight. You know, I used to teach a course at Messiah College uh, in linguistics on Monday night. And uh, it was a three-hour class. So I can keep going, I'll tell you. <laughs> I won't. But anyway, I was thinking through in John, and the things that really got to me that meant so much more were the I am passages. I am the bread of life. 
when the terrorists can't move and they can't get food that day, Jesus is the bread of life. In the darkest jungle night, Jesus is the light of the world. While people are trying to Islamize you constantly, part of jihad is arguing for their religion. And this went on all day long. But Jesus is the truth. They're showing me vividly how they're going to dispatch me several times a day. I am the resurrection and the life. You're locked in a cage and Jesus says, I am the door. What wonderful passages and the meanings that I was able to see in them was wonderful. Many times as I translated the scriptures, I questioned that I thought, would this word have the power in my life if the chips were down? If I was in a real crisis, would it have the power in my life that I claim for it before these people? And the answer was yes. And it ministered to me in such a powerful way. But how could I meditate? How could I abide in him and have his word abide in me, as John 15 says, unless I had memorized? And I challenge you, you do not know when you will be in a situation like this. And you will need to meditate upon the word of God to find your strength. Hide God's word in your heart. And this is what worked in my life. On day 18, my guards gave me a Bible. My director had tried to send it to me 15 days before. It took 15 days to get to me for some reason through intermediaries. And I turned to my favorite psalm, which is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then if you go down to, to verse 12, 13, and 14, it says, Deliver me not up to the desires of my foes. For evil men have risen against me, breathing out violence. That's exactly what they were doing. I am confident of this. I will yet see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. Wow. What strength that gave me. What encouragement that gave me. It was like a promise. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When I finally got out of there, which I obviously did, uh, I got a letter from Janice and she said, Dearest Chuck, I love you so much and I miss you horribly. But I want you to know that God has given me verses of scripture to strengthen me and encourage me. They're from Psalm 27, verses 1, verses 12, 13, and 14. What a wonderful God that is who can give Janice verses of scripture to encourage her in Philadelphia 
and the same ones to me in the Philippines in the midst of this terrible, terrible stress in our lives. He's a wonderful God. Well, how did I get out of there? Various times they told me about negotiators who were working for my release. And probably around day 20, 21, around there, they said, you've got a chance now because the Libyan ambassador to the Philippines has agreed to uh, negotiate for your release. And he's on our side. Uh, this group was known as the Abu Sayyaf. That means the father of the sword. And we found out since then that they were part of, actually part of Al-Qaeda. Uh, Osama bin Laden's son-in-law was in the city of Zamboanga, 90 miles away from where I was being held. And the FBI believes that he was calling the shots on what they did with me. We didn't even know the name Al-Qaeda in 1993, but it's very relevant today uh, of what has happened. So on day 24, they took me out of the cage and they said, the Libyan ambassador has arrived here in the, film, in the camp. He's come to get you. But it was eight hours longer of negotiating before I was released. And I finally was made to read a statement that said, in spite of the sentence of death that has been placed upon me, I have been granted clemency through the gracious intervention of His Excellency Muammar Gaddafi. That shouldn't surprise us because Proverbs 22.1 says, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand to turn it where he wills, as one directs a water course. Now, I don't believe that's moving a river. I believe that's an irrigation ditch. And all it takes to change the direction of the irrigation ditch is to take a couple of stones and put it in there, block it one way, so the water goes the other way. And that's how easy it is for our God to change the heart of a king. And he did that for me. Very humbly. Our God will take care of us. While I was waiting to be released, I was sitting on a bench outside of a little crude mosque and uh, there were more than 200 terrorists with heavily armed guys coming, taking turns, coming at me, making attacks at Christianity and asking me to answer them. And in the midst of all this, a little guy in shabby clothes came wandering through, no weapon, and he comes down to the bench where I was sitting and he backs in, actually butted in. And as he sat, pushed his side in, he hit me in the ribs like this and he said, Praise the Lord in perfect English. And I, without thinking, what would you do? 
I hit him in the ribs and I said, praise the Lord. (laughs) And he got up and he walked through this crowd of heavily armed men and they never even saw him. Like they never saw him. Well, it didn't dawn on me till probably a month later. I was in North Carolina visiting with some friends and Barb says to me, Chuck, were you there? Did you see any evidence of angels? Oh, no. And I hit him in the ribs. (laughs) But, you know, that guy was such an encouragement to me. Angel or not, where did he come from speaking perfect English and say, praise the Lord? But our God does things like this to encourage us and to show us his protection. Well, what happened to our translation? The translation of the New Testament. Uh, Is that the end of it? They told me if you go back to that place, we will know you're there within 15 minutes and a person will arrive with one bullet and you'll never know it hit you. I said, impossible. They said, we knew your every move from February to November. I said, no, you didn't. And then they told me every place I had traveled in that period of time, every move I made in the dates. So someone had been spying. So I could not go back. However, there was a pastor, Christian Missionary Alliance, Filipino pastor, who had tried to plant churches there on the island of Pangutaran. He had been driven away three different times. (coughs) But he had a passion for the people there. I mentioned a a friend that was his son thought he was coming to visit me his name was Eli he's a tailor a Christian tailor who loved the Lord and is always talking to people about Jesus well we also learned about a boat captain who was a secret believer when the New Testament was published we made arrangements for Pastor Lemuel in Zamboanga City to take five copies of the New Testament at a time, give them to the boat captain. He would put them in his personal baggage. And about every week to 10 days, he would go out to the island of Pongotada, 90 miles away. When he got there, he would take five copies of the New Testament to the tailor, Eli. And Eli knew just who to give scriptures to. So over a period of five or six years, 400 copies of the New Testament were given to people who were interested. I saw Pastor Lemwell in Manila attending a a, 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 a a seminar for people working with Muslims. And I walked into the seminary and he came up to me and he grabbed me and he said, gave me a big hug and he said, got any more Bibles? And I said, Pastor Lemwell, that's no way to greet a person. You haven't seen me for a number of years. Do you? (laughs) Do you have any more Bibles? I said, why? He said, they're all gone. We have to print more. So we printed a thousand additional copies. And they too are being distributed. I said, what's going on? He said, you know we can't go there. It's too dangerous. All we know is people are reading the New Testament with joy and they want more. Since then, four young Filipinos 
are out there ministering, uh, doing community development work, and starting house fellowships. And today there are 90 people following Christ and being discipled. So we praise God that the word of God is not returning to him void, but it is accomplishing the purpose for which he sent it. Let's pray. Father, we sing songs about your son's death and what it cost for you to send him here. And then we sing love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my all. And we would pray, Lord, with that great missionary C.T. Stud, if Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. Help us, Lord, to value your word. Help us, Lord, to hide it in our hearts so that we might meditate on it day and night. Oh, how we desire to grow like a tree planted by the waters, bringing forth fruit in its season. And we know, Lord, this is only possible by meditating upon your word, abiding in Christ, and having his word abide in us. Then we can ask what we will. And what we will is that you would bring the nations to yourself. We ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our soon-coming King. Amen. We also want to give a chance for question and answer. Um, you know, he went through a story, and it was, you know, there might have been some things that you uh, you wanted clarification on. Um, Talk about those things. I also have. I also want to let you know what we have on the back uh, table there. Um, just a few things. Um, we have a. We have somewhere in the vicinity of 2,250 open positions in Wycliffe Bible translators. There's probably a job that you could fill, and if you look on this, uh, it just gives a a few thing, a few uh, job descriptions, and you could probably say, "Oh yeah, I could do that or that," you know. Um, so consider that. And on the back is our ways to engage. Um, another thing is this uh, fold-out. It uh, has a lot of information about Wycliffe and about the uh, languages remaining and all that. Um, but also, on the inside is a pretty nice poster. We just ask that you read the, the other side before you put it up on your wall. We want to make sure you at least get a a good understanding of who we are. But we have enough for everybody to take one. Um, also, if you have ever thought, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be a linguist. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an engineer, or I'm, you know, you know I've got, you know, I'm going in a completely different direction. 
consider t- uh, going to a total it up, a taste of translation and linguistics. It's a one-week program. On the back, you see a sem- uh, sample um, week uh, schedule. And you get to try out phonetics, phonology, grammar, language learning, and wrestle with some translation uh, problems. And th- within this week, you can find out whether God is leading you in that direction or whether God would say, no, you'd better avoid languages. You know, and if you're, if you're willing to follow God either way, we consider it a win. Um, this, is, this is something that, that is held in various locations around the United States. Um, uh, somewhere close to Lancaster, Pennsylvania is the closest one here. But then down in Waxhaw, North Carolina is another place. Um, Orlando, Florida. Dallas, Texas. So uh, go to Wycliffe.org slash TIU and you can find out. And that's on the, uh, in the pamphlet here. And then another thing. For those of you that like uh, outdoor fun, you know, high adventure stuff. You know, rappelling, zipline, canoeing, you know, uh, mountain biking. Um, This is a weekend uh, adventure in northeast Tennessee. It's going to be the only one in our area. Um, It is going to be somewhere about the 16th or 17th of March. So it's uh, it's one one time in this area, and. it's, it's kind of like the, the race, the amazing race. You know, there's some physical challenges and some mental challenges, you know. With, uh, and the mental challenges have to do with linguistics, have to do with... But, but you don't have to have had previous training to go do this. And you don't have to be physically fit to do this. It is something to go have fun and learn about Bible translation. And more specifically, um, you know, language survey type uh, roles. And if you just want to... You know, keep in contact and, and hear more about Bible translation. Fill out this card. Give us your email and phone number and your home state, and um, we will uh, we'll send you information. And this is something that you can unsubscribe to at any time. But it, you'll get like uh, one to maybe two emails a month, just your know, stories about Bible translation. If you want to, or if there's if you want to ask me a specific question, just fill out this and then uh, write your question down in the blue area. You know, just to, to start a conversation. Um, we're here to, uh, to help you. We want to find where you would most glorify God in your service to Him in the kingdom. Any questions? Yes? Oh, the language we were uh, in the displaced location. Uh, people were losing one of their vowels, and they were adopting instead of it being an u, uh, they were adopting an o from the neighboring language. And uh, I don't know exactly the amount of time that this was occurring in. Uh, the community had been there for about a hundred years, but there were constantly new people coming in from the homeland of the language. So I don't really know. But people of highest status 
did not lose that vowel was an interesting thing. And they, there, was, there was sort of a royal level of people who were descended from the sultan. And those people didn't lose that vowel, but the other people did. That's a very nitty-gritty linguistic question. <laughs> That's all right. That's fine. Yeah. So a couple questions. So when you get when you get there to the island, you just begin to like meet people. How does it work where you begin to uh, establish yourself and, and make the contacts? So like, can you sit down with me and all right? Start yeah. Writing? Well, uh, you know. You're an outsider, you come in, and people are interested. Oh, who's this? What's this? Let's go and see what makes him tick. Or how do they live compared to the way we live? See, So you'll have lots of people coming just to stare. And then you ask them questions. Uh, some of them you can't ask a question because they don't know any English. Occasionally you'll find somebody who does. And there were a few people we could work with who spoke some English. But most of the population did not. So what we would be doing is, I eat too. I eat too. I eat too. What am I saying? What is that? What is that? Right. And then I, somebody comes in and it says to me, I hinango. I hinango. I hinango. And you realize he's asking me what I'm doing. What are you doing? And so I use that on them. Ahinango. Whatever they're doing, I walk around the village, say Ahinango, and they tell me, and I write it down. And then uh, somebody will come and say, And it's like, why are you doing that? And so you go around the village saying, <laughs> <laughs> And they say, <laughs> Which is, it's natural. <laughs> but you write these things down. Then you, you find somebody who can tell stories. And you record those on a tape with a tape recorder. And then you try to write them down phonetically. And then you get someone, you begin to converse a little bit and you ask what does this mean? What does this mean? And gradually you're able to translate that story a traditional narrative into uh, a fact, a translation into English. And then we use the natural story for learning the grammar and the way words fit together and where the way sentences fit together and so forth. That, yeah. What language? That was Sama of Pangutara. Spoken by about uh, anywhere from 25 to 40,000 speakers. We're not sure because uh, probably 15,000 of those are scattered around the different islands. Yeah. What do the people do? What do the people do? They raise coconuts. That's one thing. They also garden. Uh, they raise, uh, people know what manioc is or cassava. That's the main crop. Uh, they fish, living on an island. They're, the island is surrounded by tidal flats, so they collect shells around the tidal flats. 
uh, or sometimes shrimp, sometimes crab, sometimes cuttlefish, uh, octopus. Yeah. How long does it take to learn the language well enough to start translation? The first language we worked with in the northern Philippines took us about two years before we could begin working on translation on very cheap paper because we knew it wouldn't be any good. But you still do it so you have the opportunity to be able to talk about spiritual things and to share Christ. And then gradually you learn better and you are able to correct it. So you begin early with cheap paper because you know it's going to have to be redone. Yes? You said that you... Uh started doing the New Testament at the one place you uh, translated the Bible. How do you decide where to start in the Bible? Well, in the northern Philippines, there was a church where nobody knew what they believed. They didn't know. So we worked with the New Testament first there. In the southern Philippines, we were working with Muslims. We knew they were interested in the prophets and the law and things of that kind. And so we started translating Genesis and Exodus. My wife Janice has been very involved in the translation just as well. So she did Exodus while I was doing Genesis. Yes. Uh, some were literate and some were not. Uh, the first language, there was probably a 60% literacy rate in the northern Philippines where we were. And uh, in the southern Philippines, there was, among men, a 35... We did a survey to determine. There was about 50% literacy rate among men, a 15% literacy rate among women. It's the first time they've had anything in their language. Yeah. Because you, you actually reduced their language we, to writing. We had to... See, they, they had studied in school. The people who were able to go to school had uh, studied in English and Filipino, which were not their languages. And then when they tried to write their language, they were trying to write with a five-vowel system but the language had seven vowels and they didn't know how to spell certain words. Like, how do you spell mbo? How do you spell mbo or nsa or lum? See, and even school teachers were stumped. I asked them, you want to write in your language? Yes. Well, why don't you? Because... I don't know how to spell Mutsak. So what we did was we worked with them to devise a way of writing that would be acceptable to them. Now, when we proposed a way of writing, they could immediately read it, anybody who was literate. It was just that they didn't like some of the symbols I proposed. They said, don't do that. I said, why? It makes our language look weird. <laughs> okay, what do you want to do then? And we discussed how we could symbolize certain sounds so that it wouldn't look weird, 
but yet people could decode it and figure out how to read it. Yeah? What was the reason for your release? You know, I said that, I missed it. What was the reason for my release? Yeah. That's, I didn't say. <laughs> and we're not sure. Uh, the negotiation, God, God wanted it done. That's one thing. The Libyan ambassador had negotiated and they had come to some kind of an agreement for my release. So, what was involved in it, I don't know. No. I I do know that there's there are this university has a good linguistics program. Um, so if you know of lingu- uh, linguists in you know other campus ministries, you, you know let them know that we love for them to uh, hook up with us. But also, um, if you're an engineer. If you're a mathematician, if you're a musician, these are the kind of, of types of people that actually do well in linguistics. Um, you ought to at least give it a try. And then, of course, we, we need so much more in education, management, information technology, <coughs> you know, communications, operations. You know, we can probably find a place for you. So just that last thing. Any last questions? Turn it back over to you all. So uh, tomorrow, if you're you can't get enough chuck, come tomorrow, twelve thirty, in the Paiyun Sioux room. He's gonna he's gonna have lunch with us, and I've got Chick Fil A. So if you wanna, I don't know if I got Chick Fil A for everybody, but uh, <laughs> we could chop it in half. Uh, but twelve thirty to one thirty tomorrow, Paiyun Sioux room. Um, and he's going to be there to just tell more stories and Q&A and that sort of thing. So take advantage of this this man. And uh, thanks for coming tonight. Thanks again for uh, Young Life being here, Navigators, yes. you up. So it's really great to be oh, here. One other um, time, uh, we're going to be speaking to the uh, BCM tomorrow night. So if you all know where that is, I'm not sure where that is. In the chapel. Yeah, the West Wing or the... Oh, could we show this last video? It's just a few minutes. And there's probably, there's probably more pizza back there, yeah, so uh, uh, enjoy that. But let me hook the sound up. I need to hook the sound up. So what is this? This is just uh, a quick video portrait of...